Hello, and welcome to SDP Talks, a series of conversations with academics, authors, and public intellectuals. I'm William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. Today, my guest is the Italian author, journalist, and political thinker, Thomas Fazzi. We discuss the crisis of political parties of the left throughout Europe, the causes of this, and how a reacquaintance with the merits of the democratic nation-state could be a solution. Finally, we discuss Italy's difficulties within the failing Eurozone. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to SDP Talks. My guest today, speaking from Rome, is author, journalist and political thinker, Thomas Fazzi. Welcome, Thomas. Now, a couple of years ago, Thomas wrote this very uh, interesting and informative book, Reclaiming the State, with uh, an Australian economist called Bill Mitchell, an important book, and it, um, it, it chronicles the decline politically and electorally of democratic parties of the left in Europe over the last 30 years. So the first question I'd like to ask you, Thomas, is a broad one. Um, what are the main reasons for the democratic left losing its way? Well, yes, it is a massive uh, question that you know requires an equally massive answer, um, uh, which I won't be able to give. So I'll focus on what is the main aspect that we look at in the book. So there are many reasons for the decline of the political left in the in the West over the past thirty or so years, um, but the 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 aspect that we the specific aspect that we look at in the book is the 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 changing view. Um, of the left vis-a-vis uh, -vis the nation state and sovereignty more, more in general. And so we kind of situate uh, the, uh, the beginning of that shift in, uh, in kind of the mid to late 1970s. Uh, that's, uh, that's, where many, that's, that's where many of the problems of the left, uh, of the Western left begin. Um, uh, and so what, what happens then is that Basically, the kind of uh, post-war Keynesian um, regime that we have known for the past, uh, well, 30 years or so, um, essentially goes into crisis. And so, you know, it's uh, uh, what we have is a situation where the system isn't able to generate uh, economic growth. It's not able to generate, uh, or it's increasingly unable to generate societal uh, consensus. So there's kind of a breakdown of that of that regime, uh, to a large degree brought on by the, the oil crises of the 1970s. But I would say that was that was just, that's just what triggered uh, the crisis of a system that, uh, in fact, you know, had many inherent problems um, uh, in and of itself. But um, uh, without focusing too much on reasons for that crisis, I would say from the left standpoint, what happens is that. Um, well, the left kind of believed that 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 kind of the post-war Keynesian consensus was, um, I would say, kind of uh, you know was 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 something you could not go back from, and so that was kind of a structural advancement in the in the managing of uh, of modern capitalism. Uh, you know, obviously, from the left standpoint, it was a great. Uh, 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 you know, it was a great step forward compared to the kind of laissez-faire uh, free market capitalism that had preceded it. And, uh, you know, many socialist and, and labor uh, thinkers uh, kind of theorized that that system was just a stepping stone towards greater socialism. And so, you know, what, what, what the Keynesian regime had put Western countries on was kind of a, uh, you know, a, um, 
uh, a natural tendency towards greater socialism. And so uh, in many ways, they took that framework for granted as something that you could not lose. And so when, in fact, history proved uh, the left very wrong in this respect, when we saw uh, over the course of a, you know, quite a short period of time, the Keynesian consensus completely breaking down and this new monetarist and what we now call neoliberal consensus emerging uh, so quickly, a lot of the left was caught off guard. Uh, they really didn't have uh, kind of intellectual tools to understand what was what was happening because they, they hadn't thought critically enough about that system. Uh, they hadn't realized that that system was precisely a consensus between labor, you know, and capital that was made possible by a, a great number of uh, variables that just happened to kind of come uh, come together in the post-war period. Uh, but that system wasn't destined to last forever, you know? I mean, as soon as the the uh, it became increasingly less beneficial for capital, especially big capital, to support that uh, that regime. They withdrew their support for the uh, for the for the, for that for that um, kind of class compromise. And um, but the left, you know, the, it wasn't thinking about the system that way. And so when 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 that whole system fell apart, they really didn't have any way of explaining what was happening, uh, rather than the, the kind of explanation that the their enemy was giving. Uh, so, you know, the kind of uh, uh, the explanations that we were hearing about the, the crisis of Keynesianism from the likes of uh, Milton Friedman and others, uh, which explained that crisis in terms of, you know, the structural deficiencies of, of Keynesianism. And, uh, and so much of the left really uh, ended up accepting that there was no alternative to the, to, uh, to the crisis of Keynesianism other than neoliberalism. They really didn't think that there was a real alternative to that. Yeah, it's very interesting though. When you we when if you look at the data or the macroeconomic data uh, of the period, say in Britain, up to the inflection point in 1975-76, Callahan's speech and so on, actually the record was not too bad. And the strange thing, I, I, I when I look at the data now, Thomas, I look at the uh, the economic performance since economic liberalism became orthodoxy. And it's really pretty poor. And the thing that strikes me is how the narrative, how they've got away with the narrative of, of saying that a sort of debt-driven model, which, we, which is what we've ended up with, um, is better in some way. Actually, just on the data, and if you, if you judge the system by uh, unemployment or employment rates, economic growth, and so on, actually, the, we, we've, the narrative judges the uh, period to 1970s to the Thatcher era very harshly and lets the economic liberal uh, consensus after that off very lightly. Would you think that's a fair appraisal? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, the historical record of neoliberalism is absolutely appalling. Uh, if we even according to even based on kind of mainstream capitalist standards, if we look at growth rates uh, in the neoliberal era, they're much, much lower than they were in the, in the Keynesian era. Uh, and that's not to mention, of course, you know, much more socially oriented uh, variables such as unemployment, um, uh, poverty, uh, inequality, and, and so on. Um, and it's, yes, it really is a, a testament to uh, just the overwhelming, the crushing success of neoliberalism and of neoliberal ideology that today we accept as 
uh, well, we take as acceptable uh, things that would have been completely uh, unacceptable uh, in, you know, just 30, 40 years ago, you know, especially in the 19, in the 1970s when, uh, you know, uh, unemployment rates of four, five percent would have been considered, uh, you know, uh, fairly high. And today, especially if you look at the Eurozone, we have countries where unemployment rates of 10, 15, 20% have essentially become, become the norm. And, uh, and that rate, and that's a testament to, to the strength of the, of the TINA. There is no alternative ideology. And that's kind of, it kind of connects to what I was saying earlier. And um, uh, so, you know, when, when, when you accept, when the left accepts that there's no other solution uh other than neoliberalism to um, uh, to the crisis of Keynesianism, then you know once you internalize Tina, then you've essentially you've already given up because that means that you're you're ready you're going to accept pretty much anything the system throws at you because you don't believe there is an alternative. That's that's how that's how we see it on where we are. I think they I think to as much as anything, it was basically a crisis of confidence. And um, there was a sort of collapse. And if you look at the political history in Britain, when the left, if you can call it the left, in the form of New Labour actually came back in, in 97, they'd lost all confidence in, in doing what we would describe as a basic, you know, just the basics. Uh, you know, you might want to have a, a nationalised railway system. You might want to build some, uh, you know, have, have a, a state um, a public housing programme and these things. And actually, Tony Blair's government didn't have the confidence to do any of that. So the, the, the whole centre of gravity had shifted and it seemed to be, yeah, a complete capitulation to you, you just can't do this. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the idea was that the best the left could hope for was a kind of uh, slightly more humane uh, management of, uh, of, of what of, of a free market system, uh, what was considered to be, you know, the only possible, uh, you know, form of economic organization. Um, and, and, and yes, you know, I mean, over the years, the left has essentially totally internalized this, uh, this idea. And in the book, we focus on how, on how this really profoundly influenced the, the left's thinking um, with regard to the nation state. And so throughout most of the uh, uh, 20th, you know, I mean, 20th and previous centuries, of course, the, the organizing framework of politics in general, but of course, of left thinking as well, was considered to be the nation state. You know, that was considered to be the natural, the, the only, you know, existing perimeter uh, for politics, especially for democratic politics. And so, um, and in fact, the defense of, of sovereignty was considered, you know, uh, uh, essential uh, for, for left parties and movements and, uh, and not just in the West. I mean, of course, you know, we have countless examples of uh, uh, left movements in uh, uh, developing countries and third world countries, of course, you know, uh, rallying under the banner of national independence, national sovereignty, national liberation. Uh, that's fairly obvious. Um, but even if we look at Western, you know, the West in general, but especially Western Europe, we see that socialist and communist and labor parties attached to a great importance to the question of national sovereignty. And for that very reason, we're very, very skeptical uh, about the process of European integration. You know, that what was uh, emerging as a, uh, the kind of emerging European Union. Um, and, and that was for a very simple reason, because they understood that, you know, democracy could only exist within the confines of, of the nation state. You know, that beyond that, what you have is just a wild, wild west. 
uh, where, you know, who, whoever has the biggest guns wins. That's right. And we, that, we have the same thinking, basically. We, we basically believe that there's an upper limit to democracy, and that is the nation state. And the nation state is also the, the highest level where you can really convene the solidarity and mutuality to share. And I've argued a lot, if you don't, if you don't understand that, you don't end up with the sharing. I mean, that's what's at stake here. Is, is if you lose the mutuality, you lose the sharing. It's, it's a major problem. I just wonder, I wanted to put something to you, Thomas. The, one of the, 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 what you might call the neoliberal turn or the, we would call the economic liberal turn that left parties of the left got into also coincided with a cultural turn, didn't it? Uh, some, in some countries it preceded it and in some countries the cultural turn sort of caught up. But now there's a sort of fairly ugly alliance, isn't there, between a sort of uh, you know globalist anywhere sort of attitude, and you might call there's lots of ways of describing it, but you might call progressive um, uh, ID politics and so on. Do you think what's the relationship there on a, on a kind of very basic level? Of course, when you you know what one of the consequences of that of that crisis of the 1970s and the ensuing crisis of the left was you know of course if uh, and of course that became you know that those problems. Uh, were further exacerbated by the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, of course, in 1989, where, you know, the, the only really actually existing alternative, uh, in, you know, to capitalism in the world has appeared. Uh, and, and, and that really kind of, you know, was the, was what put the final nail in the, in the, in the, in the, in the 20th century left's coffin in the sense of, 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 of having the ability to imagine uh, an alternative. Um, so if once you lose that ability to imagine grand alternatives, so, you know, systemic uh, alternatives, uh, then, of course, the inevitable path is a retreat to, uh, to the kind of individual level. And so if you can't imagine change at the national level, at the systemic level, at the, at, at the, at, at the, at the level of your entire social class, then of course, what well, you start to you start to look for uh, new forms of, uh, of of liberation that become increasingly narrower and narrower, and they end up essentially you know <laughs> narrowing down to the single individual. And so, if you can't aim for big systemic change, then maybe you can aim for individual liberation, which means that you know whatever uh, whatever my desires are, whatever my identity is, whatever I feel like uh, like being and doing. Uh, I have to have the right to do and be, and uh, and and so you know it was a slow process, but that's essentially where we've arrived to. You know where we have this essentially some of micro identitarian struggles uh, that that really never end because you, they can you can break it down further and further. You know you can. Uh, you can make the, 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 the you know, the, the, someone's aspirations narrower and narrower and narrower. Um, but ultimately, it has to do with individualism. And so once, once you lose, you know, a class, which once you don't have class as your kind of organizing framework anymore, then you naturally end up uh, adopting a kind of individualist approach, which in fact, uh, you know, unites pretty much the entire political spectrum now, you know, uh, especially the left, and I would say especially the so-called radical left, which is one of the, par you know, the paradoxes of, uh, of, of our age. Yeah, I think that's, that's a fair appraisal. I think, I mean, I, I just see it as a, uh, a sort of overreach of, of, of liberalism. If liberalism is about me, then what they've forgotten is about us. And so certainly the, the broader uh, economic you know, ideas or aims that you might have 
on the left, um, you know, full employment or, or, or reducing inequality. I mean, what's astonishing about the posturing among some uh, of the woke progressive, uh, you know, groups are, are there just their indifference to inequality? I mean, inequality has been taken off the agenda somewhat and displaced by, um, you know, minority grievances, which is a pity. And, and, and actually, as a political program, I think the problem for parts of the left there is that uh, the left at its best is about convening solidarity that everyone can buy into. And actually, all this divisive stuff is doing the opposite. Would you agree? Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, it's a complete dead end for the, land, for the left to take up these issues because these are issues that... Uh, capital has no problem uh, taking up itself. And so what you're, you know, you think you're, you think you're, 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 you're fighting a very radical uh, uh, battle, but in fact, it's a battle that's completely compatible, you know, with the maintenance of the status quo in economic and social terms. And in fact, you know, we see, we, we constantly see it, you know, we, we see how, uh, you know, the parties that represent big capital are more than happy to integrate these uh, these struggles into our own agenda because it doesn't you know it doesn't shift uh, the balance of power uh, a single uh, a single inch and so you know for the for the left to uh, you know <laughs> to, to 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 really throw itself uh, head down into these issues has been has been complete complete suicide. It's very interesting because because it has been a distraction and and it you know um, the idea as long as you've got the is that as long as you've got the right attitudes then it doesn't really matter. You know, as I say, inequality doesn't matter and, uh, you know, hoarding vast amounts of money in, in corporations or whatever doesn't matter. So, yeah, it's been a distraction. In terms of the, you mentioned the Soviet Union there, of course, the, the our aims uh, as social democrats in the UK were pretty modest. I mean, it wasn't, for us, it isn't, we would always argue we, we weren't really asking for very much. Uh, we take a very frontier and domain uh, type view of our social market approach, which is that we only wanted the state to do what was within its domain, you know, and I think the problem is that the, uh, the market is, there's so much outsourcing, the, so, the collapse in confidence in what the state can do in the UK anyway, has meant that the very basics that you'd want to be part of your uh, state, part of the, the social market is, has been taken away basically, and you've got the market encroaching onto state's domain. Um, that's the way we, we looked at it. I want to move on to um, uh, what we how we view the nation state in the world, because um, I think another aspect of the left's difficulties has been how um, it's failed completely to accommodate its core working class uh, voters and families with uh, coming to terms with globalization and the, the pressures that globalization's put on uh, people. Uh, and, and, and we uh, basically have a name to, to, to try and seek a sort of softer, what we call a softer globalism, if it's a globalism, where, you know, people can make their own social and economic bargains domestically and their politicians can put them into action. So how, would, you, would you share our aim of a sort of softer globalism where the state, you know, people can make their own bargains and their democratic politicians can try and implement them? Well, uh, I don't know if I'd call it soft globalism. I certainly uh, agree with the idea that, um, you know, nation states have to be re-empowered uh, politically. And, uh, and, and, and I definitely subscribe to the notion that that's what most much of the book is about. Uh, what, you know, nation states have been deliberately weakened uh, 
this idea that we had to give in to globalization, we had to give in to globalism because nation states were becoming obsolete, were increasingly powerless in this world where capital was increasingly uh, borderless and where you know prior financial capital was becoming increasingly uh, powerful. Uh, the, in fact, as we show in the book, there was nothing inevitable about all that. I mean, that was just a political decision. And even the weakening of the of nation states was was part of this uh, was was an integral part of the of the of this process of uh, of um, uh, you know glo of globalization, which was entirely a political project, and uh, and 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 the idea was that you know of was that economic decisions had to be raised uh, at a higher level. Uh, where essentially electorates, uh, you know, voting masses wouldn't be able to reach to reach the levers of economic and, of course, political uh, political decision making, and that and 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 global and well, what we call globalism was essentially was essentially that. Uh, people sometimes, you know. Mistake globalism for internationalism and say, oh, but of course, you know, you need forms of international collaboration, of course, but globalism is the opposite of that. Uh, it's the opposite of international collaboration, you know, as the name says, international collaboration presupposes the existence of nation states, you know, uh, as free and sovereign as possible, collaborating with each other to reach common common goals. And of course, I think, you know, we are all in favor of that. But uh, globalism is an entirely different thing. It's not a, a, it's not a variation of it, of it on, on internationalism. It really is a, negate, a negation of internationalism because it's about disempowering the nation state, disempowering democracy and creating a kind of governance structure that, that exists above and beyond uh, nation states. In particular, above the ability of the, the demos or the voting public to gain access to it. And that's the, again, the, the critical thing. And uh, you, you call it, I think in the book, a process of depoliticization. We've called this in the past a, a, a process of deciding everything pre-politically, you know, so everything's decided and taken off the table. And of course that results in ordinary citizens feeling powerless. That's, that's, that's the end result of that process. If you say, well, I, what does it matter? I, I, you know, I, my politicians um, don't have power over these things. The curious thing, I mean, I want to ask you a question about this. I mean, why do you think, what do you think explains the appetite for uh, dem supposedly democratic politicians throughout Europe to accept a level of control above their heads on these things? Is it that they're just giving up responsibility or what is it? Why have they been so keen on this? Well, I think <clears throat> there are various reasons for that. And, and I think, you know, the, the reasons uh, to a certain degree differ from country to country. But uh, in, in some countries, uh, you know, definitely the countries of Southern Europe, so the ones I know best, uh, including my country, Italy, there was uh, this idea that essentially um, uh, the masses had become ungovernable. And so you had too much social conflict, which was considered to be the result of too much democracy, of people placing uh, too many demands on, on, on government. Um, and there was a fear that that would have, of, you know, that would have led down the road of, of course, increased, uh, you know, an increased socialization of the economy, uh, 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 you know, more a widening of social rights and, uh, and, uh, and, and basically 
were the working classes gaining more and more power? And that wasn't, an, you know, it was not an entirely unfair assessment, uh, in my opinion. And so uh, the question was, okay, how do we break this cycle from the, from the perspective of the kind of ruling elites? And uh, in countries like mine, they saw basically, they, they saw the idea of, of an external constraint as the solution to that problem. And so they said, okay, there's no way we can, you know, we can't unless we, uh, go down the kind of road of a military junta, which, you know, some countries did if we look at Greece and Spain, but, um, you know, in countries that accepted the democratic, the kind of formerly bourgeois democratic framework, there was this idea, okay, how do we impose these reforms that we consider to be necessary, uh, but that we're never going to be able to push through democratically because there's no consensus for them. Uh, and they came up with this idea of, you know, the external constraint or vincolo esterno in Italian. And the idea was, okay, uh, if, you know, if we uh, cede some sovereignty to a higher institution, then, you know, we can displace the responsibility for whatever, you know, bad choices we're going to have to make on these external authorities. And that way, you know, people uh, won't really have anyone to, uh, to, to, to bring their grievances to, because, you know, well, these are going to be institutions that are placed well beyond the confines of the nation state in faraway cities, uh, if not, you know, other countries. And, um, and, so, and so in a way, politicians accepted to formally weaken their power, but in fact, by doing so, they became stronger because now they could say, it's not up to me. Look, I'm not, I, I would be happy to take, you know, uh, to, 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 to do your interests, but unfortunately, you know, Europe is demanding that we do this. Or the, uh, if we look at the European monetary system of the 1980s and, and early 90s, that a kind of system of fixed exchange rates, suddenly you had something that you could uh, basically blame uh, the responsibility for all the tough social choices that governments had to do. So they could say, okay, um, you know, we're very sorry, but this is necessary to stay within this system to keep, you know, uh, to keep the exchange rate uh, stable or, or whatever. And, um, and of course, you know, the euro <laughs> ended up being the, ex you know, the ultimate external constraint where you're essentially giving up what is the kind of, I, I would say, the defining pillar of democracy and national sovereignty, which is the issuance of the currency. Once you give that up, you essentially become uh, a colony to whoever controls the, the currency, as the great British economist Wynne Godley uh, wrote in the early 1990s, when even the UK was, you know, considering whether to join the euro or not, and, you know, for, for its own sake, it didn't. Um, and so, so, yes, so it's important to understand that the process of European integration wasn't just, you know, something that was imposed upon nation states uh, and, and upon, you know, uh, populaces by evil supranational institutions. In fact, in many cases, it was the national elites themselves that were more than happy to create this kind of system of supranational governance because they saw it as a way of gaining more power themselves and of, you know, uh, uh, and that they thought that that system would help them implement policies that they wanted to implement anyway, but wouldn't have been able to do so through the normal channels of democracy. And so that's, that's kind of, you know, I would say what happened at least in a number of countries. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think they, um, certainly in Portugal, um, it was interweaved with just the grand European project and uh, membership of the European Union anyway, so certainly for a long time, uh, Europa insisted we, we must do this, there is no choice, became a phrase and, and actually largely the Portuguese public accepted because it was interwoven part of the bigger project. But it's still, I mean, it's still initially at first sight always seems 
slightly counterintuitive and paradoxical that, that national politicians would give power away. But as what you're saying, basically, like you know, you said in the book about the choice to make the uh, economic liberal turn anyway, what you're saying is that these uh, domestic politicians wanted to implement a certain uh, policy mix and they got it via, via Brussels, so. Sure, and I think the, the UK is a good example too on a whole Brexit debate. Why was so much of the British establishment against Brexit? Because they were more than happy to, you know, they, the, the, the kind of system that the EU, uh, um, uh, well, in a way sustained and justified was, you know, as a system that's entirely in the interest of the major players of British, uh, British capitalism. And so uh, it's, it's, it's fairly, it's totally understandable why would they, they would prefer to remain inside that system where people aren't given a choice about, you know, other possible options, other possible ways of organizing society and the economy, because, you know, this is, uh, the, the, these are the rules of the you know of the of, of the of the great European family that we belong to, and we've been hearing that kind of narrative from a number of British uh, politicians as well, and I think that really explains a lot of the Brexit uh, of the Brexit debate. It does a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, certainly, yeah, they can achieve their aims. Uh, yeah, Europe, the EU does does that for them. Although I thought on, I mean, in you remember, obviously you'll be aware in Britain the you know, 17 plus million people voted to leave, but certainly around 5 million people on the left voted to leave. And we concentrated on the, what we call the Lexit case. Um, uh, and I, in debating, I mean, certainly our, our aims post-Brexit were really very different to many of the um, economic liberals that were on our side on Brexit. And I made the point to them several times that, in fact, uh, a lot of uh, those those people said, well, we want to be free to do our own thing. Well, it, actually, the the the, the international uh, free trade system that they aspire to um, would would put basically a lot of rules beyond their grasp as well. So you're not really getting sovereignty. I mean, you talk in the book about um, relocalization, don't you? Trying to get uh, trying to sort of ground and base uh, democracy in back into nation states. Do you think um, that some trade friction is necessary for that. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I think, uh, well, I think, you know, in, in, in very basic terms, I think there's a very strong environmental argument to be made for relocalization and for uh, downsizing, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the amount of, uh, of, of, of the volume of international trade. I mean, the system we have in place today is just—it's just pure madness. I mean, anyone can just pick up any, you know, you know, food product in the supermarket and see that how a simple piece of meat can have gone, could have gone all around uh, Europe, if not all around the world, before landing in that supermarket. And the same goes for so many other products. So I think there's first of all an environmental case to be made for putting an end to to this absolute madness. We know that international trade uh, uh, is a huge contributor to um, to CO2 emissions, uh, um, and um, and so I think first and foremost, there's a very strong case to be made for this for for the notion that whatever can be produced. Uh, nationally uh, should be produced nationally. And I think the strongest case for that is first and foremost an environmental case. Yeah, I, I mean, we agree. I, I mean, and that actually is classic Keynesianism from the 30s, where if something can be, be, be uh, produced locally, it, should, it really ought to be. 
Uh, it makes sense, I think. Yeah, I mean, it it makes sense from a, of course, from a, you know, from 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 a working class labor perspective because it creates, you know, good, uh, good jobs um, in in the national economy. But it's not it's not just that. You know, it's also a question of uh, well, we hear we hear a lot of talk about you know resilience, resilience nowadays. Well, if you want to make an economy more resilient, uh, then reduce its dependence on uh, on other nations for you know. A, a, basic items that the national economy needs to uh, to to get along and i think the the, the dangers and the pitfalls of hyper globalization were really exposed by the by by the global pandemic where we saw just how crazy it is to have these incre incredibly thinly stretched uh, supply chains that go all around the world uh, just to get you know a single item on your on your table um, because all it takes is for a single chain a, a single link in that chain to come and done for the whole chain to come apart and, and we saw that you know when China was forced to close down uh, many of its factories in the wake of the of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, you know we saw entire supply chains collapse basically overnight and so I think there's an increasing awareness even among western politicians that this was that this was kind of madness you know I mean just putting you've created a system that they've been telling us for years makes us stronger it makes us richer that's not true at all we created a system that makes us incredibly fragile and incredibly exposed to the you know to the kind of the smallest um, uh, you know black swan <laughs> We, 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 well, in a sense, it wasn't a black swan in the Taleb sense, was it? Because we know we're going to get uh, global viral pandemics, and it would have, it would have happened at some stage. I totally agree with you. I think the, I think what it exposed is is a class of of politicians over the last thirty years that have been completely indifferent to what is made, where, and by whom, and then, and they wonder, having gutted the factories in, in the states, the people turn to populism. Well, there's a, there's a little link there, really. If, if you if you if you have policies which are against the core interests of your previously core vote, you're going to pay for it, and people will look somewhere else to go. Um, I want I wonder if we could turn finally to uh, to Italy because it's a good opportunity for our viewers to get a little bit of an insight. Now, um, obviously, we're we're keen on 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 um, European states. Uh, to, we we need to reindustrialize. I think there's been far too much indifference to deindustrialization. And Italy, over certainly in the period since it's been in the euro, its economic performance has not been good. Uh, and um, you know you, you're basically trapped in low growth, high unemployment, uh, and a, an increasing uh, deindustrialization. So um, I'd like to ask you what what reasonable options does Italy have? And I think probably countries like Portugal, who are trapped in this situation going forward, what are the options to to get to improve things? Well, yes, I think Italy is uh, is is. A sort of a textbook uh, example of uh, what of of just how bad it can be to give up your uh, your monetary sovereignty and just how disastrous the consequences of doing that can be uh, you've got a country that essentially uh, uh, pulled itself up uh, you know from its knees uh, after a disastrous uh, world war uh, in the 1950s and with its own resources with its own a currency, importantly, uh, essentially went from a war-ravaged nation to be uh, to being the uh, 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 fourth and or, or fifth, depending on how you look at it, economy in the world uh, by the by the 1980s. Uh, and then that same economy, you know, so same people, same resources, same uh, ingenuity, uh, and so on. Uh, 
over the course of just 20 years uh, was essentially turned into an economic uh, basket case. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate the case. You know, I mean, Italy is very resilient <laughs> again. Uh, so despite, you know, this, the, 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 the very negative effects that the euro has had, you know, it's, we're still, you know, 10th or 11th economy in, in the world. But I think that the euro really shows just how much damage uh, you can do to a country by forcing it to adopt a kind of monetary and economic straitjacket that doesn't suit its own uh, its own economy. And uh, and so so yes, I mean the consequences. You know, I mean, and and to go back to what I was saying earlier, um, the euro was really, I mean, the Maastricht framework more in general, and and then the euro was really used to I would say radically overhaul the Italian economy in the in the early nineties. Uh, as I said earlier, there was this perception that Italy's economy was just out of sync with, you know, with, with most Western economies in the sense that it had uh, what was considered to be a too a large a public sector. Uh, it had a massive um, public uh, public industry. Um, uh, the, the, pretty much the entire banking system was uh, was publicly held, and so there was this idea, especially you know, in, in kind of you know, neoliberal circles, that Italy was kind of this uh, uh, quasi-socialist uh, nation, you know, at a time when all the country, when every other Western country was embracing uh, neoliberalism, and there was this idea that you know, uh, how are we going to impose neoliberalism in Italy? And, and as I said earlier, you know, Maastricht was the way they uh, they sought to do that, and in effect did uh, do that. And Part of that was using Maastricht to um, was using Europe as a justification for just pretty much dismantling the entire uh, public, uh, entire, you know, uh, uh, public industry system that we had. The thing that puzzles me is that I mean, the the states on the in the south certainly have had their capacities removed. Basically, that's the that's the awkward thing. So you're you know, fully integrated member states, uh, the political class doesn't have the their hands on the policy levers to defend their industry or defend their interests. So they, what well, you know, I mean, it, you, you know, the, the form of adjustment that an external currency like the lira would have is, you know, for, I guess, for, you know, industrial producers in the north is that you, you can adjust and reprice. I know it irritated quite a lot of uh, German manufacturers, but I, you see, I look at the, I'm gonna give you a, a metaphor, which I, I think applies to the, to the single market in the Eurozone, which is a boxing ring. It's one I've used several times. And um, you've, got a, you've got a heavyweight industrial producer in Germany and, and it's connected supply uh, countries next to it in its industrial structure. And you've got people on the periphery uh, who aren't heavyweights and every single year, exposure to this heavyweight without any means to defend yourself you your industry gets knocked out and, and i you know and instead it's certainly studying portugal pretty much relentlessly deindustrialization every single year these countries are facing a very bleak future i mean i think uh, uh italy really um uh it, it continues to be the euro's weak link not in a sense that it's a weak country but in a sense that it's uh it's the only country that would still uh, have really everything to gain from leaving uh, the euro, and it's uh, it's and it's a country that would still have the chance to. I mean, it still has uh, you know an industrial base. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a declining. It's a it's a 
is, is an industrial base that's getting smaller and smaller, but it still has an industrial base that's big and strong enough. And of course, that could be uh, quite rapidly rebuilt in a kind of post-Euro scenario where we regain those levers of economic policy, uh, where it could become you know, strong enough to, um, to really get back on its feet quite rapidly. And, uh, and in doing so, you know, prove, uh, you know, be an example to other countries that might want to go down uh, that, that way. But of course, you know, for countries like uh, Spain and, and Portugal, which have really, uh, whose industries have been really completely uh, decimated and have really, you know, uh, increasingly uh, transformed themselves into kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, massive tourist attractions for, uh, for, 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 rich, uh, uh, for rich tourists from Central and Northern Europe. Um, it's, uh, it's of course much harder, but at the same time, there's no way they're gonna regain a, a, a degree of industrial uh, autonomy if they don't regain, you know, the levers of, of economic policy. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty clear. Um, but again, you know, if you look, what's, what's astonishing is that if you look at countries like Spain and Greece, uh, support for the Euro is still, uh, and for the European Union more, more in general, is still fairly uh, fairly strong, uh, especially among the left, you know, which is another one of those uh, paradoxes, which uh, harks back to what we were saying earlier. It is a paradox, it's a complete paradox because the mem fully integrated position in the EU um, effectively bans you from implementing the Keynesianism, which a lot of the left profess to want to implement. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually ludicrous. I mean, the extent of Euroscepticism is interesting because, um, I mean, in some countries, you know, Holland and Germany, it doesn't exist. I mean, it really, I mean, it really doesn't exist. Why would it? Why would it? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, broadly, I, one of the interesting things looking at it from uh, from the UK in, in the Italian situation has just been the the extent of the power over the member state that the the elite in the, at the centre has. I mean, when so you've had you, you know we had a after after Berlusconi, you had Mario Monti imposed as a technocrat. And then you had this, and I don't know if my re you'll agree with my reading, but then you had a reaction against that, and you have, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a coalition between two parties that weren't really together, I guess, Liga and uh, and and Five Star, and then that fell apart, and now you, you're back to having imposed another, yet another uh, technocrat, Mar Mario Draghi. I mean, how can you just outline how that happens? How is that allowed to happen? Well, that really goes to show uh, that the you know the eurozone really is a uh, a kind of really, I mean, it can be likened to a kind of neo-colonial system where the, the the center has a complete stronghold, you know, stronghold over the the, the countries of the periphery. Um, I, I would, to the extent that I would, uh, I would have, I would call into question the idea that Italy can still be considered a democracy, even in the kind of bourgeois understanding of, uh, of the term, to the extent that now we have this supranational institution in the form of the European Union, and more specifically the ECB, which essentially has the power to uh, financially strangle uh, a government or a country that steps out of line. We saw that in uh, 
in Greece in 2015, where the ECB went as far as shutting down the Greek banking system just to put pressure on the Greek uh, government, uh, the left-leaning Greek government that at the time was, you know, right in the midst of very uh, uh, heated negotiations with the European Commission about, you know, finding possible alternatives to austerity. And at that very moment, what does the ECB do? It basically forces the entire Greek bank banking system to shut down, completely unprecedented. Uh, you know, event in, 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 in history, as far as I know, a central bank shutting down its own country's banking system to the extent that, you know, the ECB is also Greece's uh, central bank. But we also saw it in Italy in 2011, when, uh, again, in the midst of a, uh, a government crisis, uh, uh, as you mentioned, that Rusconi was in power at the time, the European Central Bank uh, saw, thought very well to essentially stop buying uh, Italian bonds on sovereign bond markets uh, with, with the explicit aim, as Mario Monti himself admitted uh, later on, uh, of uh, sending interest rates um, you know, through the roof and precipitating a government crisis in Italy uh, as, a way, you know, as a way of ushering in then uh, a technocrat such as Monti that would implement precisely the kind of policies that the ECB was demanding from the Berlusconi government. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that we're dealing with an extremely pernicious regime i mean where so so i think the euro should be seen not just as a, a, an extremely dysfunctional economic model but also and perhaps especially a form a, a, a political regime uh, a form of uh, very authoritarian political governance um so this is uh, i think this is very important and and you know what we've what we've seen over the past with the you know over the past 10 years in italy uh, which you were referring to, really, uh, really shows that we're, we're at a point where, uh, regardless of who comes to power, uh, whoever you know, whoever uh, manages to form a government in Italy nowadays, is essentially deprived of all the economic levers that would be necessary to get the country out of the crisis that it's in. Especially now, you know that we've lost, you know, almost 15 percent of GDP uh, due to the uh, due to COVID. It's shocking. I mean, certainly looking at it from our side it's been shocking i mean you you'll be aware of the pressure that was put on on brexit as a political project and they tried their very very best i mean our, our elites a lot many of our cultural political business elites over here desperate that it didn't happen and now now desperate that it fails so it's it's very difficult but the i mean to, to your point about um what happened in greece i mean bill mitchell made the point a few times that um that uh, there isn't any mutuality i mean where, where it shows the project is is completely um, at, at the core, it's, it's, it, it doesn't exist. I mean, when, when, when the Greek crisis came, it was, it was the French and German banks that were bailed out and the, and the people in Greece were, were thrown away. I mean, it, what, what, I, what I think is it sh shows something in the human condition that if you, can, if you can have, if you can sell these things on the basis of a sort of utopian project, people seem to just forget about the detail. But, you know, 40, 40 or 50% use unemployment in the South is, is not a detail. It's, outrageous but it really goes to show that how you know how much people can withstand and are willing to tolerate if they don't believe that i don't that if they don't believe if if they really think that that's almost you know god's decision because that's what neoliberal tells them you know this is basically the only you're living in the best of possible world you know and in, in, in the best of all possible worlds and uh 
it might not be great, but you know, it's the best you can, it's the best you can hope for here on earth. You know, you can try and hope for something better in, a, in the afterlife, you know? And, and of course, if you accept, once you accept that idea, which the left completely accepted, then almost anything becomes possible in terms of social experimentation, you know? And, and I kind of, I think we're seeing that. Italy is, you know, we see, uh, 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 you know, at regular intervals, a, a pushback, but, um, but at the bottom line is that until that pushback uh, becomes a pushback against the European Union and against the Euro and becomes a movement for greater national sovereignty, then Italy is just going to, you know, these, these populist, so-called populist uprisings are, are just going to be uh, uh, constantly diffused because they're going to, you know, they, they, they're not addressing what is the root problem of Italy, which is the Euro. I, it is the root problem. I'm not sure in the end. I mean, I know that the, what you call the, the, the extreme centre um, has been quite successful actually in in deflecting these 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 revolutions uh, basically, but I'm not sure that they will succeed in the long run because um, oppositions have a habit in the end of becoming governments, and I think you know somewhere in Europe that's going to happen. It may may not be a, a, a sort of type of populism that we would approve of, but you know I, I think they're on fairly thin ice. Um, so anyway, we'll we'll see. Can I thank you very much and wish you all the best. The book, just to remind people, is Reclaiming the State, uh, which is an interesting read. Um, thank you very much uh, for your time, Thomas Fatsi. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of SDP Talks, a series of conversations with politicians, academics, authors, and public intellectuals. If you'd like to be updated when new episodes of SDP Talks go live, make sure to subscribe or follow us on your podcast platform of choice. And if you're interested in learning more about the Social Democratic Party, do make sure to head over to our website at sdp.org.uk. Thanks for listening.